You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with the fall guy. Let's do it later. Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes. Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Because nope. I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. Hello, tech fans, and welcome into the Tech Sideline podcast as we record on Monday, October 18th, 2021. This is episode 200 of the podcast, and while we'd like to have a big celebration of this milestone, instead we'll be reviewing Virginia Tech's 28-7 loss to Pittsburgh and having a heavy discussion about the future of the Virginia Tech football coaching staff. We'll talk about the game, of course, but more importantly, we'll be discussing what it means for the program, the mood of the fan base, what will happen the rest of the season, the impact on the coaching staff, where the Hokies go from here, and more. It's all coming up right now on the Tech Sideline Podcast. Welcome back in episode 200. I'm your host for today, Will Stewart, Tech Sideline's founder, general manager, and owner. Ooh. Our regular host, Jake Lyman, isn't here today, I believe. Is he's cavorting around in Nashville, is that right? Yeah, I think he's enjoying himself down there. Right, right. Okay. Getting ready for Monday night. It's killing him that he's missing this episode, but I did not kick him off for this episode like we <laughs> kicked Evan off for the Fuente interview. <laughs> All right, let's see. Uh, so we welcome you in, whether you're watching uh, live on YouTube or watching or listening archived on YouTube. SoundCloud, Stitcher, Amazon Music, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Two Cans and a String, we welcome you in. So if you're watching on YouTube in the, in the words of Will Ferrell, stop what you're doing and listen. Click like and subscribe right now. I'll wait. Okay, done. Thank you very much. Appreciate that. And don't forget to comment. <laughs> and don't forget to comment not only during the live stream, but afterwards. I, I think the comments afterwards get you more smoke in the seo and kind of get you to get boosted up towards the top so as to my left as always is chris coleman our lead analyst and columnist and across the way in the chair that i usually occupy we've got our managing editor and football beat writer david cunningham david's here because i really wanted his input on this plus an empty chair on the set looks kind of stupid so in the fourth chair today we have nick brown who'll be taking your questions from the youtube chat so be sure to chime in and we'll toss it over to nick right for the break for any interesting tidbits and trivia that he's got and of course, producing today's show, as always, is my firstborn offspring, Malcolm. I like to call him that instead of the greatest podcast producer in the land, because I can. The only other person who can call him that is his mother, and I guarantee she will never host the podcast. <laughs> so the Tech Sideline Podcast is sponsored by the Southeast Regional Training Center. So Jake has this polished intro and that he does sponsored plug for the Southeast Regional Training Center, but I'm going to switch it up and say, hey. If you want Virginia Tech wrestling to continue to get better and be the best it can be, visit southeastrtc.com and donate. And if you donate enough, I promise Tony Roby will be your best friend. He loves people that donate. So, uh, yes, I just read the entire opening off a sheet of paper, including the jokes. But from now on, we are winging it. So I know that everybody would like to avoid discussing the actual game, but it's kind of our duty to, to talk about it. So I've got some notes. So what was the score again? 28 to 7. 
And who predicted a uh, 21 point win for uh, you and David? Actually, yeah, David and I picked a 21 point win. I, 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 I was the optimistic one. I only had the Hokies losing by 11 at home. Right, right. So we, uh, we both had scoring more than seven points. Yeah, yeah. So the seven points was kind of rough. So, um, so I, it's hard to figure out where to start with that. I, I'll tell you where it started for me. I, first of all, I thought Tech played pretty well, particularly on defense early on for. You know, for a good 20 minutes or so, but where I, you know, and, and, and I don't know, we get into play calling and things like that, but the very, Tech's very first play from scrimmage, correct me if I'm wrong, they throw a pass 15, 20, 25-yard out pass in the hopes of getting a five-yard gain over by the sideline, and Trey Turner drops it. Uh, yeah, I think first it would have been about game? a seven-yard gain or something. That was the first play of the game, yes. Yeah, yeah. One so. of probably four or five drops so that was interesting because the offense they talked about wanting to run the ball all week long and then they opened with i think seven straight passes uh you know ideally you want to run the ball but against Pitt, i mean unless you're just dominant right you have to be able to complete passes on the outside to move the ball uh, yeah. against them because they put that extra man in the box and it just wasn't likely that virginia tech was going to be able to establish a running game without hitting downfield passes in this game. But there wasn't much of a chance of them hitting downfield passes in this game either because they hadn't been able to do that all year. So there's a reason we all picked Virginia Tech to lose by double digits. Like right. I said, I was the optimist. Brandon Patterson and his little preview wrote, I think, 35-17 to 17 pit. I mean, y'all yeah, and it. I think I was 38-17. Yeah. David was 41-20. Right, right. Yeah. So uh, there's a reason we all I, – I, I did say I think Virginia Tech's going to hold pit to the fewest amount of points they've scored this year. And they did yeah. that. And I thought I said I thought the Virginia Tech defense was going to have more success against Kenny Pinnett, Pickett than anybody has. And that's true. Five and a half yards per attempt. That would rank sixth in the country over the course of uh, of the season. So I'm disappointed and worried about Virginia Tech's rush defense. But you know, on the whole, when you hold the other team to twenty eight points and quite honestly seven of those are on the offense, not the defense. Because uh, of the interception? Because of the interception. Yeah. So really you hold them to 21 points and 5.5 yards per attempt. That should be good enough to win most football games. It was not good enough to win this one, and it wasn't even close to being good enough to win. Yeah, this I mean, one. in modern-day college football, when you hold the other team to 28 points, you know, you should have a, you should have a good shot at winning. Um, so since you mentioned the point total by Pitt, I wanted to throw out there that uh, Pitt had 411 yards. But that is actually not their lowest output of the season. They, uh, my note says here, Tennessee held them to 397 yards. Oh, really? So 14 fewer yards. Now they ran 82 plays against Tennessee and 81 against Tech. Yeah. So that's actually plays. yeah, that's actually fewer yards per play against Tennessee. So good, good adding for the Tech defense, yeah. but you know certainly not the best. Well, well, I was talking yards per attempt passing. Yes, well, I was talking. Yeah, 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 my okay. point's not related to yours. Okay. Well, one of one of the things I picked up on watching the game in the press box. It, one of the things I always do is I and I redo it at halftime and then finish it after the game. Is I go through and I've started to do a jot down every single Virginia Tech play and how many yards they gain, and total yards on that drive. But I really like looking at the drive chart because it compiles everything and it shows you, you know, how basically how well teams are doing back-to-back -back drives and whatnot. Virginia Tech held Pitt defensively. They made them punt on five of the first six drives. Right. That's yeah. pretty good. Then Pitt comes back after they intercepted Tech inside pretty much the red zone. You know, Pitt goes down and scores a touchdown. But up to that point, Tech had forced 
five punts on the first six possessions. That's as much as you can ask for against the top offense in the country. Absolutely. And, exactly. and Tech spent the first quarter with the wind at their back. So they had the ball around midfield the whole first quarter and could do nothing with it. Yeah, first two possessions were like right around midfield because I think Pitt's punter got a bad punt off or something like well, that. Well, there's the wind blowing right in yeah. his face. And when the wind flipped the next quarter, it was Peter Moore who had a bad shanked punt. Or yeah. it, looks, it looks bad. People are like, oh, boo, what's wrong with him? Well, the same thing was wrong with him as what was wrong with Pitt's punter in the first quarter. It was yeah. a 20-mile-an-hour wind blowing right in his face. And, and Tech started all three of its – Drives in pit territory, like it's for or at least two of its first three. Mm. Two of them were at, at midfield, so yeah. it's like you can't ask for a much better field position. You, you had a chance to get off to a good start because your defense forces upon on five of the first six drives, yeah. and then you have good field position, but you come up with absolutely nothing, and instead you actually have a turnover that hands the other team a touchdown. So there was that, that turnover, and then you know there were there were two plays. Uh, you remember the uh, the throw down the field that would have been for a big gain to Tavion Robinson? He caught it, but then he didn't secure it as yeah. he hit the ground and it bounced away. And then, like, maybe the very next drive, Kenny Pickett throws this ball downfield to this receiver right in between, like, two Tech defenders. And the guy just goes up and snags it. And Tech receivers generally don't make plays like that. And and that could have, that could have been a 14-point swing right there just based on one player making a play. So, uh I, I thought it was a kind of an admiral performance by the defense to a certain extent. They, they need to do better against the run. Yeah. But they're put in horrible situations. Pitt had the ball for 38 minutes. Yeah, well, part of that was their own doing. They had a 10-minute drive in the fourth quarter. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But, you know, it's there was also at one point in the third quarter the Tech offense had four first downs. For the game, yeah. 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 I, and I, I thought – I, and credit to Pitt. I mean, Pitt made a lot of plays. Mm-hmm. Like there was that there was that one play down the uh, down the Pitt sideline where Pickett kind of lofted it up, and and Wayne went up and out muscled Jermaine Waller and just right, went and right. made a play. Like right. those are the type of plays that defensively, if you want to, you know, I know you've made so many plays already, but if you're the Virginia Tech defense and you want to keep your team in the game, those are the plays you have to make. And yeah, well, those, I think those are the they, plays Pitt made. I think it, there there comes a point in every football game and where a fo- football players just realize we're not going to win today. Yeah. And that's when you check out mentally and sometimes physically. Uh, and Do you think that point was 14 nothing for Virginia Tech? Probably. That's where it was for me <laughs> in my head. Yeah. <laughs> you know. Yeah, but pro- on, honestly, probably. I mean, it could vary by player and everything, but, you know, certainly by halftime. Right. Um, you know, or certainly when you force a punt on five of the first six possessions, you're basically like, what more can we do here? You know, you're still losing the football game despite despite doing that. And uh, you know, it's it's not the it's not. We all thought Tech was going to lose, and we all thought Tech was get, was going to get handled basically. Yeah. And that's not really. It's not, the disappointing part isn't that it happened because it ever that'll happen every now and then to somebody. The disappointing part was going all week, like knowing that was going to happen. Getting in a bed Saturday morning, getting <laughs> in my car, going over to my parking spot and just the entire time thinking we have no chance to win the football game today so we're going to have a good tailgate and that's going to be the best memory of the day and there were no surprises yeah there were no surprises. and i was gonna say you asked when it probably like clicked for the team well on tech's first six offensive possessions they had one drive and it was the second one that went for more than three plays right like it was literally three and out three, three and out three and out three and out they they drove 50 yards on eight plays on the second drive of the game and then turned it over on downs. Turned it over on downs. But oh, yeah. the other five possessions, four of them were three and outs, and then the last one was an interception. So it's after, like after at two that, plays, right? Yeah, and yeah. at that point, it's like 
you, you can't move the ball. They, they finally did what everybody asked them to do. Line up under center and run a quarterback <laughs> and sneak on fourth and short. Right, well, right. There, there is nothing more they can do from an X's and O's standpoint this year to make it better. So They've you tried are, everything. So you are correct. It now comes down to, to execution. So um, when Pitt lined up to for it on fourth and one and put the quarterback under center, they blew Virginia Tech's defensive tackles yeah. off the ball. They did it twice. Right. And got five yards. Yeah. Yeah, so I've got so I'm, I'm just I have very few notes on the game. So um, on Pitt's second possession, this is still a scoreless game. Do you recall this? Where the Hokies weren't? It was third and seven, and the Hokies weren't ready to go at the snap. They I think they brought Breon Murray out and brought Keyshawn Artis in, and, and Artis right before the ball was snapped was looking at the sideline, doing this, trying to get the call, and and Tech bent down and just put their hands on the ground and they weren't ready to snap. Okay. And that was a third and seven in a scoreless game. Right. And Pitt ran it, I don't know, peeled off like a 15-yard run because the Hokies weren't ready. Right. So I've got that written down. Also, with Pitt up seven to nothing, do you remember the uh, the screen pass that Garbett broke up? Oh, it yeah. It got thrown into him and went, went up in the air. Yeah. He threw his mouthpiece about 15 yards and landed on the 40-yard line, and he never went and got it. It just sat there. Yeah. I don't, I don't know when anybody went on the field and actually got it, but you could see it out there. It was, it was a yellow mouthpiece. And instead, a pit receiver, I think it was Jordan Addison, is just right there in the area and goes and gets the ball. That That's the kind of play that could be disaster for an offense. That could have been picked off and run back for a touchdown to tie it up at seven. Yeah, and you know what would have happened if that had happened? We would have lost about the 28 same. to 14. <laughs> but, 28 to seven. but you mentioned that third down play. <laughs> That's a third and seven inside the red zone, and Pitt scored two plays later after that. Yes, yeah, and that, that put them up seven nothing, I believe. Yep. So let's see, and then another pivotal sequence was Virginia Tech got the ball. Tavion Robinson, did he fall or did he get knocked to the turf? I thought he slipped from the press box. It looked like I never saw a from the press box. It looked like he slipped, and Fuente asked us after the game, like the media. I caught that in the yeah. press, and he kind of asked what we thought, and I think. The consensus was there was probably a little bit of a push, but he also like looked like he misplaced, like just slipped and couldn't get his full like body going forward off the line of scrimmage. Oh, I know Fuente was livid on the sideline. Yeah, he, he was five yards out there on the sideline yelling at the refs. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So um, I, I watched it, and Tavion went to cut, and his cut foot, his outside left foot, slipped out from underneath him, and he sort of kept moving in that direction, and the linebacker who was coming over fell on him. So it looked bad, but he did. I get why the refs picked the flag up. Yeah. yeah. What did you think of the refs, by the way, in the first half? Specifically? What did I think? Um, I'm I'm not a guy who really gives a rat's hind in about the refs. You know, I mean, you can't control them, and and I know there are people that because uh, a lot they got a lot of criticism from people in the first half. They were letting yeah. them play. That's what I thought. Yeah, but that's well, that, that, that's common uh, by ACC refs. Yeah. Um, I mean, Fuente talked about that before the UNC game. He was like, look. UNC's defensive backs are going to take your head off of the line of scrimmage because the officials in the conference let them do that. And he said, I'm not complaining about that because that's how I think it should be. But our receivers have to be tough, and they got to be ready for that because it's going to be coming at them this game and in some other games too. And quite frankly, they haven't been ready for it all year. Yeah, and this is one of the other games right. where the refs kind of – the refs literally just said, go play, and Tech's receivers couldn't really get off the line of scrimmage. Right. And that's common in Virginia Tech Pittsburgh games. You know, Pittsburgh's defensive backs are really well. These days, it's common for Virginia Tech in every game. Yes, that is very true. So it was seven nothing. That play happens, and uh, and uh, there was a uh, 
the the play you just talked about a minute ago, David. Third and twelve after that from Virginia Tech, thirty-one. Pitt throws it down to the three, and uh, who was the uh, tight end that went? Who, who was a receiver was that receiver. went up? It was uh, it was Jared Wayne. He finished six catches for ninety-four yards. In the yeah, touchdown. he just he went up over Waller and got it. And, all day. and that's kind of where the dam broke, where it became fourteen nothing, yeah. and and they kind of went after that. You yeah. know. Uh, so let's see. Um, so looking at, um, you know, looking at the PFF grades from the game. And, and whether or not they match to the eye test. We always talk about that. So we've got a printout here. And again, these are, uh, these are preliminary. Mm-hmm. I thought I saw someone say after the game that they thought Tech's defense tackled okay. And I thought, man, were you, were you watching the same game I was watching? And looking at the PFF grades, the, the Hokie defense got a 40.9 tackling grade. Now, this is interesting because the first uh, five games before that, 72.1, 71.3, 66, 65, 67. So all and, well above average to good. Okay, every yeah, year. yeah. Yeah, not bad. And then a 40.9. And it, to me, it really stands out if you go and watch that 10-minute possession that, that Pitt had. Yeah. I think it was, was That it was in the, the third quarter, quarter right? They were, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, well that it was, was the third the or fourth quarter. It was whenever they scored, right? Uh, Which I thought was third quarter. I think it was the fourth quarter. To open the fourth quarter, they shaved 11 minutes off the clock. And, and, but they didn't score on the drive? They, That's they stalled it, out. It, it uh yeah it was turnover and downs. Pitt had okay. the ball from okay. the thirteen twenty eight well, minute mark in the in the fourth quarter to all, the two minute mark. All that is that doesn't mean Tech's a bad tackling team. Right. It means at that point it's twenty eight seven and the defense knows they're going to lose and they're just going through the most. Well, they were trying trying to strip the ball a lot, right? And things during, like during and things possession. like that too. Yes. Yeah. So that doesn't that doesn't mean you're gonna they're gonna come out next week and not be able to tackle. It's just well, I'm, I'm telling. Look, I've been on football teams like this before. <laughs> we're we're almost my whole football career where you walk on the field or and certain generally before halftime you know you're going to lose. Yeah. So it just gets worse from there and you start going through the motions mentally and sometimes even physically and and that's that's just what happens. It's human nature. Um, and that's what's happened that's what happened to Virginia Tech defense on Saturday and that's why I, I think they tackled worse in the fourth quarter and it really impacted their overall. And score. you know what's scary is <laughs> in this week comes Sean Tucker and the number one or number two rushing attack in the ACC. That's yeah. right. And, and a quarterback who's 230 pounds and, average, and can run by you and yeah. run over you. And they're averaging – the running back is averaging six yards per carry and the quarterback's averaging five. Yeah. But this is not the Syracuse, Syracuse preview podcast. Yeah. Jake will be running that yeah. one on Wednesday. <laughs> so, um, you know, what else can you say about the game? Uh, we'll, we'll get into the post-game press conference here in a second, but – is, is there anything else about it that stands out to you? Not really to me, you know, in the interest of full disclosure, in the time I've been running Tech Sideline, Hokie Central slash Tech Sideline, I've left three games early. 2009 uh, uh, Nebraska game. Me too. Which I heart, heartily regret. <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, 2010 JMU game. That one was rainy. And I think I was there with Richie Davis, and I think he had to go somewhere at halftime, and I thought, well, I'm not going to sit here in the rain. And so the, the, the Wendy's that is, on, uh, that is on South Main in Blacksburg, yeah. every time I see that Wendy's, I think about losing to JMU in 2010 oh, yeah. <laughs> because I left and it was raining and I went and got in the car and went to Wendy's went to, to Wendy's. get some food. And I think <laughs> I was in the Wendy's drive-thru when I realized, man, Tech is going to lose this thing. <laughs> um, I left because I left it was raining and ugly, not because I thought Tech was going to lose. So... And then the third one was uh, Saturday. It was twenty-one nothing at halftime. Oh, you have no chance to win. Yeah, I mean, I mean, 
What at what point did you leave? Right at halftime. Did uh, you stay really for the homecoming time. court? Wow. Um, <laughs> I did not. The homecoming royalty. I did. I did not stay for that. Um, so one of the reasons, one of the reasons I leave a game early is is I'm a recognizable person, and if I get in that area where I'm very negative and yeah. and nothing good, I feel like nothing's good. Good is going to happen. I don't want to sit there and run my mouth. I extricate myself. The, the, the guy behind me at the game is one of those types where he just complains about every single thing, no matter what. Especially, so, the, especially the wide receivers coach, Zon Burden. Yeah, <laughs> but yet he also believes Zon Burden is Virginia Tech's wide receivers coach, and Zon Burden hasn't been Virginia Tech's receivers coach since 2015. Yeah. Right? That's a long so, so, time. So I have no issue with complaining when it's justified, and if you come at it with knowledge – yeah. You better come correct. Yeah, you better when you're sitting behind me. You better come correct. <laughs> how, how old is this guy? Older than me, but okay. like not old. But old enough to know better. Old David. enough to know better. Yeah, okay. um, so I was like, you know what? I'm not dealing. Twenty-one, nothing. I'm then. I'm not listening to this anymore. <laughs> what point did you leave? Hey, same time. I was out. And you know what? I saw. I saw the second half better on television than I can uh, sitting in the stadium. Yeah. You know, and I didn't have to deal with, you know, Mister Mister congeniality behind me anymore yeah. you know so uh, uh not that i particularly blame him because there's nothing uh uh no there's nothing positive to say on saturday but uh i, I sat with my friends this time as opposed to in my seats and they were like yeah he's like this every game <laughs> every like like even when you're beating north carolina it's like oh everything's terrible it, you know it was the game over and we yeah. won yeah yay <laughs> <laughs> right it's kind of like uh, Major League Two with the Randy Quaid character who just sits in the crowd and is just negative the entire time. So uh, I did I did watch some of the uh, second half over at Malcolm's place. Uh, he, he streams, so it's delayed. So when you're standing outside having a beer and the crowd cheers, you walk in his house to see what happens. You didn't hear him cheering very much, did you? No, you did not. So, But, but I did get to see the Tavion Robinson catch touchdown. for a touchdown. Um what led to I don't recall what led to Virginia Tech being down there that two pass interference penalties by yeah Pitt. otherwise yes. otherwise the scoring Tech, streak is probably over. Tech got bailed out and I'm not that they weren't pass interference penalties but anytime you get a pass interference penalty I would say that's getting bailed out and then getting two I mean Tech, I, I think Tech I, they was, were back to back it was basically. like Tech was Tech had like two third downs and didn't convert it was basically took them like from like the 35 yard line to the three to the three line. and yeah, then it, like and then that, Tech right, just yeah. ran like a little. Uh, like boot quarterback bootleg and and, uh, and Burmeister just you know, threw it up to Robinson. Threw it up to Robinson. He made a play, but and that was pass interference too. That was also bad, but that didn't count. Yeah, um, <laughs> no, that was. Uh, I, I didn't think Pitt's second pass interference was pass interference. That's my opinion. But I also didn't think the the call on Armani Chapman yeah. on Pitt's scoring drive of the second half was pass interference either. Right. Yeah. So it's interesting. Like the refs, they don't call a lot at the line of scrimmage. On, on but a lot of backs. But I, I thought, for whatever reason, in the third quarter of this game, they got ticky tacky with the, with their yeah. pass interference calls. I think. Yeah, and, and not that. I mean, Tech probably wouldn't have gotten down to the three. I don't think they. I don't had, know. Had maybe two. maybe maybe Fuente would decided to kick a field goal just to score three points. I don't know, but <laughs> uh, but yeah, I mean that that was one of those games, and I thought about writing this in my article yesterday. But you know, there were just a few times throughout the years where the, the scoring streak has really been in jeopardy. Right. Um, so the Wake Forest game, obviously, when it was zero to zero with the end of regulation, uh, the Rutgers game, the bowl game, when it was ten nothing at the end of three quarters, uh, the twenty fourteen Miami, when it was uh, thirty to thirty nothing. to nothing until they got a garbage time touchdown with what, less than a minute left. Yeah, it was Mark Leal yeah. to a freshman yeah. Isaiah. Yeah, Ford, exactly, I and. Yeah. Uh, Maybe maybe there was one more. 
in there that I, that popped in my head. But this was another one where Tech was very fortunate to score. Well, the one that did not go deep but wound up being very risky was a 38-7 loss to Pitt in 2001. That was a special teams touchdown. It was. And right. oh, oh, the at West Virginia in 2003 defensive mm-hmm. touchdown, 28-7. to Right. So that's about six games, I think, throughout that whole scoring streak, yeah. which dates back to – I don't know 95, what year. Which yeah. Da- yeah, which dates, dates back to, I guess, whatever was after the, the, the Miami game. The Miami, Cincinnati yeah, game. Yeah, um, yeah, Nick and I were talking about it before the show. Tech has the third longest scoring streak in the nation. 339 games. Right, right. And, 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 only and, and maybe Florida. like once every four or five years on average that like one game seriously threatens that scoring streak. And yeah. it was seriously threatened on Saturday. And I don't know if Tech would have been able to score without those two pass interference calls. Right. So let's uh, – Let's drill down into that a little bit. Uh, so that was the Virginia Tech's worst output all season in terms of points and yards, 224 yards, uh, only the second only. <laughs> the second time under 300 yards this season in six games. Now they haven't gone over 400 yards in any game this year. Yeah. So going in the by the traditional metric of total offense, Virginia Tech right now ranks 120 out of 130 FBS teams in terms of yards per game. Uh, just behind Vanderbilt and just ahead of Rice to – Exactly where you program. want to be. Nice. So Bowling Green's number one twenty-two, by the way, coached by <laughs> Scott Love. Coached by Scott Love. <laughs> no. the Hokies are uh, number one hundred eleven in scoring offense. Um, and yes, I played the mental game of taking out the uh, defensive touchdown and the special teams touchdown. It doesn't really change it a whole lot. You know, they're one hundred eleventh out of one hundred thirty teams in scoring. Number ninety-three in rushing, number one hundred six in passing, and so and so, so on and so forth. You get the idea. Top one hundred in rushing. There you go. Right. Because Burmeister can run can when the play, the, when the original play doesn't work. Will I assume you saw the stat I put in my article, which was this was the lowest, fewest amount of yards in a Virginia Tech game under Justin Fuente. Wow, I did not the see the previous that. low. So the previous low was. Against Notre Dame at Notre Dame in 2019, when Quincy, when Quincy Patterson was, was at the quarter, yeah, right, at quarterback. Yeah. Do you remember what that number was? Was it 230? It was 237, and so Tech had 13 less yards. And as I wrote in my article, had Malachi Thomas not had a 12 yard rush on the last play of the game, right. it like it could have. I think would've going into the last drive of the game, it would have been under 200 yards of total offense. Yeah. All right. So uh, I want to read something to you. Uh, stick with me. I know this is a lot of numbers if you're just if you're just listening or watching. So QCP is a uh, guy who uh, posts on our boards, and and he generally will post statistical type. Really stuff. good at stats. Stuff, yeah, he, he doesn't he doesn't like to jabber on and on about stuff. He generally just you know brings the bring this brings these statistics. And so you know we're, we're through six games now, and he wanted to see how it compared to all of Tech's offenses since 1990 through six games. So, through six games, this year's offense has totaled uh, 1,871 yards, 106 points, and has had no games over 400 yards of offense. In terms of yards, since 1990, the 1,871 yards is only higher than the 2007 and 2008 offenses, which are generally known as two of the most hideous offenses in the history of Virginia Tech football. I've blocked most of 28 from my brain, thank goodness. Yeah, so also the only other offense since 1990 to not have over 400 yards through six games was the 2008 offense. Right. You know, that's funny because I described it in my article yesterday. I said, I said this is just like 2008 yeah. with Tyrod Taylor. All we have is a quarterback scrambling. That's all we can do. Can't so, run so the football, can't pass so the that, football. So that makes sense. And the crazy thing is we actually had Darren Evans in 2008. Yeah. yeah. So we actually put up some rushing numbers later in the year, but – 
still the overall stats were terrible. So in terms of offensive points, the 106 points is the lowest since 1990 with the next, the lowest since 1990 with the next closest being 1991, 113 offensive points through six games and 2007, 118 through six games. So, uh, that's where this offense is. Um, those are depressing numbers. And I think they've been, with the exception of one year, I think under Cornelson and Fuente, they've actually been top five in scoring in the ACC every year. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so why the insane drop-off from one year to the next? And to me, it's it's a lack of confidence. And I, I, I think knowing how it is to be a football player that lacks confidence in your coaches. Because that happened to me in high school. I, I know how players feel when that happens. Um there's a certain level of performance that, that Fuente talked about in his press conference yesterday that, that they're struggling to reach. And like, There's a difference between playing hard and playing competitively. And You can only reach that second level where you're playing competitively if you have complete confidence in yourself as a player and complete confidence that the coaches are putting you in the right position to succeed and everything like that. And these guys cannot have any confidence in, in their offensive coaching right now. They, 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 how could you? Yeah. It's, um, and I keep hearing that too. So it's not just my opinion. I just I just keep hearing it more and more that the players don't think they're coached well offensively. And if they don't think they're coached well, you're not going to get much out of them. You're not going to be able to come out there and say, oh, well, if you call this play this week, we're going to get something going. No, no. They don't have any confidence. It's not going to work. Yeah. So I don't think it's smart for them to continue with Cornelson as offensive coordinator for the rest of the year. Um, because they have players have no confidence in them, but yet that appears that's what they're going to do. So I don't expect it to get better. I, I think they're going to score more than seven points because Pitt was a unique, difficult matchup yeah, as we yeah. talked about. But uh, I don't think they're going to magically turn it up a notch and, and just start scoring a bunch of points and things like that. I think what you see is, is what you get, and and I think Fuente needs to take control of the offense himself. Um, right now, you know, he's running the scout team offense. Right. And he's talked about this. And you think about it. So he's running the scout team offense against the starting defense. So, in my opinion, Virginia Tech's two best pure football coaches, Justin Fuente and Justin Hamilton, the two Justins, are on the same field for every practice. And that's, and they're in effect preparing the Virginia Tech defense for each game, the two Justins. While Brad Cornelson who I don't think is as good as either Justin. Brad Cornelson and whoever is coaching the Virginia Tech scout team defense, some grad assistant probably, they're on the other field preparing the Tech offense. Right. So there's a reason that the Tech defense is decent and the offense is abysmal. I mean, Tech's two best coaches are over here with the defense and their their worst coach and a grad assistant is over here with the offense. It's, it's a completely unbalanced arrangement. I, I think Fuente needs to hand over – I don't. I don't think. I think Justin Hamilton can stand on his own two feet at this point, and it's vital that the Virginia Tech offense improve. And I think Fuente needs to hand that scout team over to a grad assistant or whatever, like most most coaches do it, and take control of the Virginia Tech offense. And I, you, you need sometimes a player like they don't have any confidence in, in Cornelson, but you know sometimes you need you need a different voice over there. And that can give you just enough of a spark. Like, if the Tech offense was just a little bit better, if they were just bad instead of horrendous, Tech would be five and one right now. Right, I agree. And and we we would be ranked. And that sounds insane to think about. Yeah. 
because they feel like they're a long way away from right. that. Yeah, well, right. And it's interesting when we talk about like the 2007, 2008 offenses because those teams went and won nine, ten games. Well, they I had mean, the number one defense in the country. And, so. and, that's, and yeah. that's the yeah. point. And, right. and this defense, like you mentioned, this defense is pretty good. It's decent. I mean, it's not the number one in the country. No, but, but, yeah. but as, as I wrote in my, in my recap of Saturday's game, this defense is good enough to win you games. Like this defense they're, is not going to lose you games. They're, they're playing well enough in general. Yeah, yeah. yeah, you'd like to improve the rush defense and everything yeah, like I mean, that. And, but considering Hamilton had such a short time, you know, he had a whole COVID year when he couldn't teach a scheme, and hardly any players on this defense is at this point, except for the true freshmen, yeah. were recruited to to run his scheme. Right. This is all. I mean, they've got a five eleven defensive end that was recruited to Bud Foster's scheme. Right. right? So I think considering where he's come from, what he inherited, and that his very difficult first year on the job, he's done a good job. Yeah. Cornelson's had six years, and it's gotten worse. And, and he's had six years to build, recruit, yeah. and it's gotten worse. And one of the things I'm that, that really stood out to me was it was a question that Andy Bitter asked earlier in the press conference, and it was specifically about the offensive line. But I think this goes for the entire offense – Andy asked about if if Justin Fuente was uh, surprised by how little of a push the offensive line is able to get up front considering how many of them are older veteran players. And I think that is a common thread just as the off, on the offense as a whole. I mean, almost every single player with the exception of a couple true freshman receivers, and Caden Moore. Yeah. Every single player has played in games before. They sure. have experience, right. but there's no production. I mean, the production right. just isn't there. Um, and we've talked about, you know, like Trey's the same player as he was as a freshman, basically. Um, you run that quarterback sneak, and, you know, they made the right decision this time on who to run it by. Remember against West Virginia, they they, they ran it over there to the right behind, right. Uh, behind yeah. Tyrell Smith, and yeah. this time they lined up under center and ran it right behind Brock Hoffman and Lucita Smith. And guess what? It still didn't work. You know, and I'm telling you, man, these guys, I know what it's like to play on a football team where you don't think you're going to have success. They're not mentally engaged. And they're not going to be mentally engaged unless there's a change. And so I just don't – Fuente, he talked about, you know, finding a way to to get them to reach that next competitive – that next level of competitive spirit. And there's nothing you can say to them at point. I think he's searching for ways – searching for – ways to act and things he can say, they're not going to be confident unless they have new leadership on that side of the ball, in my opinion. So let's let's table that for now okay. and get to that after the break. It's surprising. We, we're like 35 minutes in, which, like I said, I didn't think we could talk about that game for that long. <laughs> so I'm going to toss it over to Nick in the fourth chair, and the pressure is on him to be interesting until we take our bathroom break. So, Nick. Yeah, it's 200th podcast, so I wanted to be a little more upbeat all it's right. also big shout out to Frank Beamer, seventy five today. Seventy five. Seventy fifth birthday today. That's right. Yeah. Two hundred podcast. And we uh, had big a big day. Yeah, yeah. Tech is celebrating the two hundredth podcast and Frank Beamer's birthday at right. the same time. When was Frank Beamer's two hundredth win as a Hokie? Oh man. Overall, it was in two thousand seven in Queen Murray State. But when was his two hundredth win at Virginia Tech? How many games did he win total? Do you have that number in front of you? 238. I looked, 238. He, he told me about it, so I have a little bit of an advantage because he, he told me and I looked up some numbers beforehand. But So what game did he win his 200th game at Virginia Tech? Yes. yes. And, he, and he won 38 at Murray State? 
No, he won 238 games at Virginia oh. Tech. Oh, oh, okay. okay. Yeah. So that should give you a ballpark. So here. I'm backtracking in my head. Yeah. Um, he probably won about 24 or 25 games his last four years. Seven, seven. It's got to be 2000. It's got to be 2011. It's the right year. Okay, I have the right year. Um, <laughs> was it against UVA? Nope. No. Okay. 2011. That would have been forced? a fun one to be too. It was. Mm-hmm. It was the beginning of the season, right? Oh, yeah. was it? Okay. So East Carolina. Yep. Same game of the season at ECU. What was the score of that game? Seventeen to ten. It was one. Yes, it was thrilling. Yeah. Yeah. In 2011. And Nick said he was there. Yeah, I was there with my family. I remember being little and thinking that the purple smoke and Petey the Pirate was the coolest thing in the world. Hey, what I wouldn't give for for a nice quality 17-10 to 10 win over East Carolina. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, don't, I don't know that's that quality of a win anymore. Um, so do you remember the little tiny cannon that East Carolina had? Yeah. He loved it. Yeah. He wrote a huge article about I'm how silly that yeah. relentlessly. So I went to the I think I think Tech also played him down there in two thousand nine or twenty ten on a Thursday night or something like that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I went down there and that's one of the most boring games I've ever it seen was like in my 16, life. Three, another thriller. Tech had Tyrod Taylor and Ryan Williams and, and all those guys and it was an incredibly boring game, so I came home and my Monday thoughts was I just spent the whole time ragging on East Carolina because I don't know. Every, it, their, their little tiny cannon, it was like they were down there in the end zone with a little puppy. You yeah. know, I, I'm used to Skipper, which is this big, huge They have like five thing. guys standing around that tiny thing, too. <laughs> well, that's part of what I thought was so funny was I didn't even know they had a cannon. And then I'm sitting there, and this thing goes, boom. And I look down there, and, and it's the size of like a Labrador or smaller. And all these guys are crouched around it, tending to it, you know, <laughs> to its needs. It's probably like so. the size of like Growly. So it just <laughs> probably about maybe even smaller than Growly actually. So it just struck me as funny. So I so I made the game was so dull that in my Monday thoughts I made fun of East Carolina. Everything was arg arg, you know, all the time. Man, and some people that read that were not happy with me. They're like, "That's disrespectful." <laughs> East Carolina is a fine football team. And I was just like, well, "Never go off the rails, Will." That's when I learned not to go off the rails. Uh, sorry, I did learn that they are very, they're great fans down there, very yeah, hospitable. Yeah. Um, there was a point in time when parts. Virginia Tech and East Carolina was the exact same football program. Yeah. I mean, both independent, came from a similar background, stadium sizes were similar, the fan base's attendance and support was similar, and then Virginia Tech got into the Big East and East Carolina did not, and here we are. And and, and I can tell you, like, uh, circa 1990, East Carolina was a better program. Sure, yeah. Um, I remember, I think it was 1990 where they had, uh, they had a running back, Ernest Biner, and they had somebody else that I think it was good. And Ernest Biner went to East Carolina. I did not know that. Yeah, they, they played for the Browns, I think. Yep. They went 8-3 and three that year, and the three losses were by like one score mm-hmm. to a ranked Florida team and that yeah. sort of thing. Yeah. And then uh, I think it was the next year they won 10 or 11 games, won the Peach Bowl. Mm-hmm. You know, they were really good program. They, they always had really good quarterbacks like David Garrard. Jeff Blake. Yeah, yeah. Guys like that, yeah. And, you know. And then the forces that move college football wound up against them. Now, my only interesting stat of the day, really, is for the related to Pitt, is everybody thinks that Pitt's had Fuente's number and all this and that. Under Fuente, three and three, only been outscored by Pitt, one hundred sixty-three to one seventy-seven. That includes some that includes beat fifty-two downs. to twenty-two and forty-seven to fourteen. That yeah. twenty-eight to nothing game, I guess. Help make up for it. Um, And then the first game was 39-36. That's right. So that's pretty crazy how close it is even with those beatdowns. Right. 
Yeah, that's interesting. Mm-hmm. All right, break time. Anything else? Uh, that's all, right, all I've got. Thank you very much. So when we come back, we are going to talk about uh, the mood of the fan base. And we're, we're going to kind of give you some facts about the Virginia Tech coaching staff, contracts, things to think about. You know, there's a lot of talk about is, is Fuente going to be the head coach next year? Or is Cornelson going to be the offensive coordinator? So there, there's some things you need to know to kind of put all that in perspective instead of just taking out your pitchfork. And so uh, we'll discuss that when we come back after the break. So welcome back into episode 200 of the Tech Sideline Podcast, and many thanks to the Southeast Regional Training Center for sponsoring the podcast and Tech Sideline in general. So uh, again, visit southeastrtc.com. So uh, uh, we are told by Malcolm that there are quite a few people in the live stream on YouTube right now. Uh, close to 300, Malcolm, 250, 300. Um, yeah, 269, which is a lot. Usually it's somewhere between 75 and 150. So I imagine this is the part that you're all waiting to hear, which is the discussion (laughs) about coaching. So uh, let me set the table for you a little bit and and give some facts and figures, which you're, uh, I think you're, I think your fans who peruse Tech Sideline know this stuff, uh, but let's make sure everybody listening knows. So Fuente's last contract extension was signed in January of 2018 on the heels of the 2016 and 2017 seasons when they were 19 and eight, I believe was the aggregate record. Uh, He had gotten some interest from other schools. So Witt signed him to a six year extension in January of 2018, which runs uh, in quotes through 2024. So he has a contract that he's under contract 2022, 23 and 24 in addition to 2021. So three more seasons after this one. After this one. Right. So the, uh, the buyout, which is currently ten million, drops to seven and a half million. It's either December fifteenth or sixteenth. It may be the next day, but it is mid-December when it goes ten and a half million down to seven and a half million. I'm not sure when discussing his status how big of a concern that is because I do not think now everybody loves two and a half million dollars. Don't get me wrong. That's <laughs> not that's not chump change. That's a lot of support positions and that kind of stuff. But from what I understand, I don't believe you have to come up with all 10 of that at once. I think it's payable over time. That's Some how that stuff works. Between yeah. the school and the agent. It'll be, I mean, yeah. it'll be over multiple years. Yeah, probably two and a half million a year for yeah, three well, or four I mean, years. You, I, I always, ref, when referencing buyouts, I always look back at how at one point Virginia Tech was paying like five head basketball coaches, men's yeah. and women's <laughs> at the yes. same time. Yeah. Yes, and Seth Greenberg, he dragged out for years yeah. at like 300K a year. Mm-hmm. So there, there's that, there's Fuente's situation. And um, what a lot of people don't understand is that, oh, he's the coach through 2024. He's already getting compromised in recruiting because his contract only goes three more years after this one. So if you're recruiting against Virginia Tech on the recruiting trail, you're saying, well, Fuente's only under contract for three more years. It's actually amazing Tech has recruited as well as they had this year. Yeah, I think they're With those new facilities right? they built that I think that really helped. Yeah. But there's going to be enough negative momentum built up where like, okay, everybody says he's on the hot seat. You had to hold a press conference last year to explain to everybody why he was retained. And right. He's only got three years left on his contract. So, so like right after the game, um, I thought all the, the sentiment was, I'm done with Justin Fuente. And I hit up a couple of people I know who are pretty connected at Tech, who are, who are real supporters of, 
of the program and of Fuente. And I said, well, what do you think? And they said, uh, I'm, I'm done. I don't, I don't think I'm, one of them said, I'm not coming back to another game this year. Um, so that's kind of where I thought the sentiment was. And then, Chris, I read your article yesterday, and it was actually about the offensive coordinator. And we'll get to that in a second. I'm, I'm going to shut up here in a second and let you guys run with it. Um, and I had an interesting experience on our site this afternoon. I went to the free football board, and it was all about who's going to be the next head coach. And over on the subscriber board, there was an in-depth discussion about changing out the offensive coordinator. Um, so in my opinion, or, you know, this may not be an opinion. It's uh, it's pretty easy to figure out. The options are to stay the course. Now we got, we still got six games to go. If you wind up three and nine, that's a little bit different animal than being <laughs> six and six. You know, so you, you can stay the course. You can change the offensive. Co- I don't think we're looking at changes on the defensive staff. You can change the offensive coordinator, maybe some other offensive positions, or you can clean house of everybody entirely. Mm. So, with that said, go. I think he should uh, assume complete control of the offense himself right now, Justin Fuente. Because there's absolutely no chance you can bring back both Fuente and Cornelson next year and actually have the fan base be willing to buy tickets. Right. Um, I, You know, I, it's funny. Back around the start of the season, I got a call from my ticket rep at Tech gauging my interest in renewing my season tickets for next year. You don't have to renew season tickets until like the spring, right? So this is like six months before then, and they're asking me if, if I'm going to renew season tickets or not. So it's almost like that's a uh, – they're trying to run some numbers to and get some feedback. Getting from, a feel. Uh, getting a feel for where the people are yeah. with – are they going to continue to buy tickets? Because ticket sales were already down this year. And I told them, and this is the truth, that's like – it's really hard to get people to go to games with me these days, so I feel like I'm wasting seven hundred dollars when I could just buy one ticket to each game for you know cheaper. And it, I mean, so I, and I think that's uh, so a lot of people probably feel right now. So I, I just I don't think you. I think the fan base would just completely check out if you come back next year with both Fuente and Cornelson. So. Fuente needs to pull the plug right now if he wants to be back next year, in my opinion. So do it right now. Right now. Yeah. Yeah. Should have should have been an announcement today that he was doing it. Yeah, if you're going to – I mean, it, it's a question that Fuente's been asked before. I mean, I've been in those press conferences where – and a lot of times it'd, it'd be like Mike Barber. And when Bar, – Bar, you know, of course. Because, <laughs> and, 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 and Barber would just be like, have you thought about changing – you know, have you thought about taking control of the office? That's where the ludicrous, 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 ludicrous crap. Yeah, yes. and that's and that's he's like that's the most ludicrous crap I've ever heard. But that is the type of move that could potentially change the trajectory of the season. If right. if if Fuente assumes full control of the offense, says Cornelson, you're just going to be the quarterbacks guy. I'm going to control the offense. You know, play calling, all that good Game stuff. Plan. Yeah. And we go back to talking about confidence. I wonder how many of the players, if they see their head coach, who they, as we talked about, they believe so much in and and they respect him, all that stuff. If he takes full control, how much of how much uh, their confidence would just lift? I've heard from multiple people who have talked to players over the last couple of days, and they, I keep hearing, the players really really like Justin Fuente, but they have no confidence in Cornelson, and they think he's the whole problem, and. So, to me, like, I don't think Cornelson's any better or worse coach than he was last year or the year before or five years ago. 
But I think when confidence in you ebbs, it affects the player's performance because they have no confidence in you. Right. And that's why Tech is 13th in the ACC in scoring offense this year. And generally speaking, they've always been fifth or, they're on, or, or around that in the past. I think they were 10th in 2017, but that was just a freshman-laden offense. So they were actually scoring more points with a bunch of freshmen at key positions on offense in 2017. Right. They don't have a bunch of freshmen at key positions on offense this year. Uh, they've got a lot of experienced players, and they've gotten worse. And they've gotten worse because the confidence has ebbed in the offensive coordinator. Where there's a lack of confidence, there's a lack of performance. Subconsciously, you're not going to play as hard. You're not going to be as mentally dialed in. You're not going to come up with those ultra-competitive plays and things like that. And that, That's the thing. If Fuente has realized that then, and he still hasn't made that change, that he is the absolute most loyal person to ever walk the face of the earth. To his detriment. To his detriment. Yeah. I mean, that's more loyal than Beamer was. Yeah, and I, I think it gets to a point where if you don't make that change, you're, you, there's a really good chance you might not have a job next year. Well, yeah. yeah and, depending and, on how the rest of the season goes. And so he has to think about these things, you know, and, and – this is going to sound kind of silly, but I but I sit here and I think to myself, what if David Cunningham was just a total disaster <laughs> and, and I had to fire him in the middle of the season? Then that means yeah. somebody's got to do David's work yeah, and that right. somebody's going to wind up being me. Right. And then the voice in my head goes, well, you don't get paid $4 million a year. you know." And, and so Fuente gets paid the big bucks. And if it means he's got to increase his workload for a while. I wouldn't necessarily increase his workload. It wouldn't to a certain extent. But, but he's already he, – he's already – He's got an increased workload as a head coach right now because he's running the scout team defense. So yeah. he has to prepare himself offense. for that. Or Yes, scout team offense. So he has to prepare himself and prepare those scout team players each week for these are the types of plays we're running in practice to prepare yeah. our defense. So he would offload that to somebody else and then assume Cornelson's duties. Yeah. So it would be, yes, I'm sure it would be a slightly increased workload, but like it wouldn't it wouldn't be hugely drastic, in my opinion, because he's already basically coordinating the scout team offense. Uh, yeah, I don't, I don't think it'd be enough to completely – like, it's not like the dynamic of the team right. is changing. Right. Right. He's, and, just, he's just becoming more hands-on. And you've got, you got six more games, man. It's not like you're talking about doing it the rest of your career. Get yourself to the end of the season. Where you can Try, try to win some changes. games and make sure you don't get fired, and yeah. then you make the changes if that's – if, if you know, if you don't get fired. <laughs> so, so a couple of questions. Number one is a, is a small question, and the other one's a larger question. The first question is, uh, he's the head coach on the sidelines. Cornelson's up in the booth, he's right? In the booth, yeah. How easy is it to call plays if you're on the sideline and you don't have that aerial perspective? I imagine you could put guys up there who talk to you and say, "Here's what I'm seeing." You know, you, it's. I think it's funny that you see defensive coordinators most of the time on the sideline, right. and offensive coordinators in the booth. But each defensive coordinator. They got to do. They have their Jim Cavanaugh in the booth. Yeah. Their eyes and ears. Yeah, right. Um, I, I think it. I do think it is a little bit harder. No, the advantage of being on the sideline is, is you look your quarterback in the eye when he's coming off the field and you see he, what he's feeling and and everything like that. And you can physically interact yeah, yeah, with yeah. your players. It's uh, it's doable for half a season, in my opinion. Yeah. All right. And and, and look, he did call plays at at Memphis for his first three years there. He didn't turn play calling over to Cornelson until his last year at Memphis. So that year in 2014, when they won 10 games or whatever, he was calling the plays from the sideline. Yeah. Um, So it's certainly, it's it's, it's doable. Maybe not ideal. So he has experience doing it. That's a good point. Yeah, and and as Chris said, it's probably not ideal because if you have this system set up where 
your offensive coordinator's up in the booth calling plays. That's probably the way you're most comfortable with it. But if you're trying to keep your job, then you've got to do what you've got to do. And it's not about X's and O's right now. Yeah. It's about confidence. Confidence. And those players are not going to walk on that field confident on Saturday if they feel like they have the same leadership that's putting them in the same position to succeed or not succeed, right. as we've seen the first six games of the season. Yeah. Okay, so so then the second question I had was, not only if this is really a question, it's a, it's a discussion point. Um, they're, they're reaching an important fork in the road here. We just talked about Fuente's contract and how if he goes on without getting extended, he's going to get kneecapped in recruiting. Yes. Now, now, I joke, when we were talking about recruiting earlier and how he's only got three years left on his contract, well, as we always say, you know, most high schoolers think they're going to play three years and go to the NFL anyway, <laughs> right. so they're like, that's fine. But if that contract starts to get down to two years, then it gets really difficult yeah. to recruit. So put yourself in Whit Babcock's place. Let's say that Justin Fuente does decide to part ways with Brad Cornelson. At the end of the year, Fuente's got to hire a new offensive coordinator. That's a really tough thing to do if you yourself don't have a, a longer contract. Although, yeah. continuing the stream of consciousness, most – Position coaches and assistant coaches only have two-year contracts anyway. Depends on the school, yeah, yeah. one or two years. Um, but the thing is, like, whoever you hire as offensive coordinator, you know only you're only going to have one year to fix it because Fuente would only have one year left, most likely. Before, yeah. like, it would be one of those things. Okay, if you don't fix it this year with a new offensive coordinator, then it's over. So, like, as a new OC, you wouldn't even have a chance, like, you to. Bring in your own players. Maybe you, you, you have to do well, and you have to do well with these guys. Besides a little bit of the transfer portal, right, right, but, right. But it'd be right. like, and I, and my mind immediately goes to, and I that's just because of recentness. But um, obviously, as Nick has talked about all day, the Ed Ogeron stuff. After winning a national championship, after not doing well the following year, he brought in, you know, his offensive coordinator and defense coordinator were plucked from him, and he had to bring in new guys. And yes, it was during COVID, mm. but he brought in Bo Pelini as his defense coordinator. I don't remember who his offense coordinator was, yeah. but they couldn't do anything. They fired like, Pelini after one year, right? Yeah, that was I mean, stupid. they they looked they were not awful, good. Yeah. And, yeah. and so that's the risk you're running. But to your point, I think I, I think that's the right move. And, and my question would be. Is that the only thing you change on offense? Is it just Cornelson? Or is, uh, I don't. You, you, you would have to like. There, I don't think there's any coordinator who would want to come in and say, "I can't hire any of my own coaches. I just have to yeah, hire and that, that your was wide receivers coach, was. your tight ends coach, your offensive line coach." Like I have to. Like I've never coached with these guys before. I you. I would at least want to bring one or two of my own guys. In, yeah, it's complicated, you know? man. Everybody who's like, get rid of Cornelson. This is how complicated. Right, it right, is. right. Um, okay, so so let's push Brad Cornelson to the curb. Who's right. going to take that job? Right, uh, under what we just talked about, where like I only have one year to do this thing. Yeah, you have to prove uh, yourself. Or else, right, right now, exactly. Uh, or if, man, what if it's somebody who's already at a stable job and they're like, why would I go from this stable job to this thing where I could get fired after one year if it doesn't work? Right. Um, so let's so there are really three options here, and let, let's let's assume that Fuente and Cornelson Cornelson being retained together for next year. Let's assume that's off the table and not an option because it should be. If it is, <laughs> I think you might have a riot. Yo, yeah, you might, I might be leading it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, um, but anyway, uh, so op, your one option is a clean break, fire everybody, including Fuente, uh, and I guess your uh, the other option would be new offensive. Uh, 
coaching staff completely, yeah. right? Yeah. And uh, but then you've only got one year to do it. And so do you extend him? Right, right. So you could extend him, and that would make it easier for you to hire a new offensive coordinator, right? But that also it's like. You just gave a guy who has whatever his record is and who has the, doesn't really have the confidence of the fan base. You gave him an extension. Tr- try explaining that away to the common fan who yeah. sits behind me in Lane Stadium and thinks Zon Burns are still wide receivers coach. Right. Yeah, right. Yeah. That, that's the, that's fan, not the fans work. who are buying tickets that are, are just coming to see them win. Ex- exactly. Yeah. Um, so that's. Uh, uh, I don't know, man. That we're in an awfully bad situation yeah, right now, as far it, as that goes. And, yeah, it's, and I'm not, I'm not saying that we're not saying this because Tech just lost a pit per se, but it just just seems to be the general trend. We're three and three. It's kind of like back is in the cor- like right. back back to the wall. You're in a corner, kind of boxed in, and you, you thought you were about to make progress when you beat UNC. It turns out UNC stinks, or isn't very good. Yeah, no argument there. Yeah. Um, so to add some historical context to this, also swapping out it, as anybody who has half a football brain knows swapping out a coordinator isn't the magic fix. And so let me put it in terms of, that a Virginia Tech fan will understand, a longtime Virginia Tech fan. Phil Omassian is generally considered as being the key hire that that turned things around for, for and, the Virginia Tech football Frank's book, he named the chapter the most important, important hire I ever, ever made. And he wasn't talking about Bud Foster. Right. So, um, but and I'm sorry I didn't have the time to pull these stats up. It wasn't like the, he was hired before the 1993 season, and it wasn't like the 1993 defense dominated. Mm-hmm. They didn't, nor did the 1994 defense. Mm-hmm. It wasn't until 1995 when, when Bud Foster and Rod Sharpless took over, and then in 1996 when Bud became full-time. Like, 93 and 94 were good defenses, but not great. Yeah, yeah. and um, what what Elmassian is, is credited more with was changing kind of the attitude the around culture. the program in general. But for for you to see really see the fruits of his labor on defense, it took three or four years. Yeah. So, man, if, if if you get another offensive coordinator instead of Brad Cornelson, it's not like they're suddenly. I don't know. Maybe you could have a miracle worker, and they would go out next year and tear it up. But there's right. just no guarantee that that's going to happen. To me, the the only way to potentially stabilize Fuente long term is if he takes over things now, and Tech was able to close strong. And then you hire a new offensive coordinator in December. If the Tech was able to close well enough where people could accept giving him a contract extension, or at least even accept giving him one more year, then right. you, then then it becomes easier to, to hire an offensive coordinator and you're more stabilized for the future. Um, because then but, people because then people will have noticed the change, right? Correct. And people, you know, and then there will be pressure not just from the fans but internally also. Like, right. okay. Clearly, the change worked. Now, what are you going to do in the long run? And but but you know, we, without a contract extension, though, you're gonna you're you're gonna have another year where you have a lame duck a lame duck coach with a short contract. Yeah. You know, and that's that's not a sustainable recruiting situation. So you end up harming your next head coach, or or if if works out for Fuente, for Fuente, you he harms himself for three years down the line, right? Yeah. Um, so I don't think that's a – that just doesn't seem like a viable option. Uh, I, I, to me, to me at the end of the season, it, like you extend or fire. It's and, – and one thing to remember is that uh, 
we're used to perceiving uh, head coach extensions as being favorable favorable for the head coach. Doesn't have to be in this case. He gets a lot more money. <laughs> he gets a longer nope. term. He gets a increased buyout. Maybe that's not the case. Yeah. yeah. Now, mm-hmm. now you're going to have to deal with Fuente's lawyer when you're, you're when you're negotiating right. that. Right. And I'm talking about negotiating down the buyout. Mm-hmm. I it's I don't think the lawyer will let negotiating the salary down fly. Yeah. Even though I've gone, I've gone publicly gone on record. Justin Fuente's made over twenty million dollars since he's been here. Yeah. If I'm him, I go from four. He's he's going to make four and a quarter or four and a half next year. Yeah. I knock that down to three and a half, and I spend some money. Here's on some offensive coaches, right? Yeah. Right. And you know what? And to buy myself a couple of years and get my extension, you know what? <laughs> Screw the buyout. I've already made so much money that this is about my future coaching career and making it trying to be a success because. Once you get fired in college football, you know it's hard to find redemption. You know it's it's, it's not like it's not back. like soccer where all these legendary coaches get fired <laughs> yeah. at every other job, but yeah. then they're still Thomas considered. T- Thomas Tugel gets fired at PSG and then, and then wins the Champions League. Yeah. Exactly, it's it's not like that. Yeah, and it's not like the kicking world in the NFL where kickers get fired all the time and they yeah, get hired and somewhere get, else. Oh right, and, and the Packers coach gets fired, and now he's a head coach of the Cowboys. Yeah. Right. I mean that stuff doesn't do, doesn't really happen very much because there's in, so many options. Right. And yeah. Yeah, so I, I think he needs to – if he's serious about a long-term head coaching career at this level, those are the types of things he needs to think about. Yeah, and what I was going to say is, like you said, extending him doesn't necessarily mean he's going to be – you know, you give him – I mean, it could even be like a two-year extension. You give him a two-year extension, that doesn't necessarily mean he's going to be here for two that two, two right. years. But if you negotiate the contract right, yeah, make sure that it's – you're not – screwing yourself even more you're not boxing yourself into a corner even more because if you do extend him and you do give him more time because he does take over the offense and does bring in a new offensive coordinator Mm -hmm. then you're giving him a little bit of leeway and you say okay you've got a year maybe a year and a half to figure it out but if you don't you're on a short leash and because you negotiated the contract right you're not screwed and boxed into a corner if you want to get rid of it. And you, and you save yourself buyout money yeah. in, in the long term. Now, if that's the strategy they went with, and, and this is where I don't trust them, is, the, is they would have to do a great job communicating to the fan base that this is our strategy. Yeah. This is why we're doing this. How and much, they how, don't communicate to the fan base very well. Yeah. Well, so, how, much, how much more of that capital does Whit Babcock have? Because right. he, he, he took a big risk last year by – by keeping him, and as I talked about before the season, uh, I don't want to use the word needed, but in order to stem the tide of, of negative commentary from the fans, maybe the word needed is right. This needed to be a year for Justin Fuente, similar to Frank Beamer's 1993. Correct. Yeah. There was a huge difference between 1992 and 1993. Yeah. There's not a huge difference between 2020 and 2021. Yeah, it's kind of going the same we way. We needed to see progress, and we have not. And, yeah, and, and, I think, and so that's why the outcry is so strong, and that's why continuing to keep him would be so difficult. Yeah. Correct. And I think uh, in some ways it's not even – like you haven't even made progress like it's it's not you've, even you've made progress on one side of the ball but yeah, taking you've such made, a giant step back on the other exactly. one exactly yeah. Yeah, yeah and it is a giant step back i mean the the rushing offense i believe was number 10 in the country last year with Khalil Herbert and it and, is well now, you look at he's a legit nfl running back <laughs> yeah. you know and, 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 he had he had um, he had 17 carries for 97 yards and a touchdown yesterday yeah, yeah. for the bears yeah exactly uh, so and, that's his and, second and week in a row with 17 or 18 carries and, and, and a good number of yards yeah he's yeah. a legit starting running back in the yeah. nfl um but here's the thing, though, man. Like he was developed at Kansas. He wasn't even developed here. Like he showed up good yeah, to go. Yeah. So I mean, they plucked the, him out of the portal. Yeah. Um. So the whole thing plug about plug and play. 
you, I, I've always said, I know I've said recently, and I still believe this actually, that the number one issue in the program isn't play calling or, or whatever. It's development and discipline and things like that. Changing your offensive coordinator doesn't fix those other things. Frank Beamer changed coaches after the 92 season, but he also implemented 20 different points throughout the program. And he called that title in his book, uh, what was it, tw- 20 ways to improve from a... 20, way, 20 ways to a seven-game turnaround. To a seven-game turnaround. 20 steps And there, 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 there's so turnaround. many things bet- in there between like, okay, Thursday night curfews before games for players. So like to make sure... The little things. The, the little things. And, uh, you know, if you... you if you if you're begging out of practice because your leg hurts, okay, that's fine. You have to report and get your training at six a.m. the next morning. Yeah. And if you can't practice during the week, then you can't play in games on Saturdays. Yeah, um, it's little things like that that I think are, pr- are probably the bigger issues of Virginia Tech's programs long term. Now, right now, short term, I think the, the biggest issue was confidence in the offensive coordinator amongst the players. You can fix that right now if you're Fuente, by assuming control of that. But that other stuff that I just talked about is still going to be an issue in the offseason. Uh, that, and that's what would have to be fixed. And that's the type of stuff that I don't think he really has a grasp on. Yeah, well, so I, so I, would, I wouldn't be confident in, in that. Like, like, if I thought he could, he grasped all of that stuff and was really good there, then I'd be like, okay, I think we can still be fine if we just change offensive yeah. coordinators here. But I don't think you can do – I think if you only do one of – one of those things, it's a half measure, and I'm tired of half measures. And that's the thing, Cornelson is would be a half measure yes. anyway, David. Yeah, well, I was going to say, part of that is stuff that, and correct me if I'm wrong, but part of that is some of the, some of the stuff that should have been fixed heading into this season. Mm-hmm. No more, you know, not really not having to deal with all the craziness of COVID anymore. You've brought in new recruiting staff, you know, I mean, we had this this the press conference with, with Witt. Witt held the press conference in December to, to say that he's keeping Fuente and that they had discussions that there were going to be changes. Mm-hmm. And yes, the defense looks better, but the offense has taken a step back. And what's changed? Like like structurally in the program, all the behind the scenes stuff yeah. has anything changed? There's no way to know because we don't know what goes on there. In the yeah. be- the only reason we know about it from Beamer's era is because he wrote a book. Because he wrote a book about it because yeah. he almost won the national <laughs> yeah, championship. Exactly. That's, that's, like, that's oh. the only way we know about all of that. Um, so, but I, I've known enough people in that program now who have been a part of it, and I've asked them enough questions where that's where I believe the, the biggest issues are in, in, in that program is, is, is little things like that. I, I, I think generally speaking, I understand why fans criticize what they criticize because that's the things they can see. Yeah. They can only see the games, right? Yeah. Uh, but, but if you don't talk to anybody who's in the program, you can't see the other nine months or what goes on on a day-to-day basis throughout the week. But that's where I think Tech's bigger issues are long-term yep. uh, and, during the Fuente and, era. And what's to say that will change? And, and so, as I said on our message boards, you go back and you read that chapter in Frank's book, and, and what fans saw after the 1992 season was they saw the assistant coaches get cleaned out and new ones get hired. Right. They saw none of that other stuff that Frank they, they, did. They didn't know any of that happened until eight years later when he wrote his book. When he wrote his book. And, and that stuff was extremely important. Right. Maybe, with the exception of the Phil Omashian hire, maybe more important right. than just changing out your coaching Yeah, yeah absolutely. And Omashian helped you with some of that culture, too. Yeah. I've got friends that were on the team back then, and they said we used to joke, who was the head coach, Phil Omashian or Ricky Bustle? Yeah. And those were the two coordinators while Frank stood up in his tower and just watched. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So, um, so there was a lot of change back then. And 
So you could change out coordinators uh, this year and the fans would see that, but there's no way they could possibly see any of that other stuff behind yeah. the scenes. So I would be happy from a standpoint of changing coordinators. It would make the message boards easier to monitor and everything. But I would still have the same concerns myself yeah. right. about the program. The same player development it wouldn't, concerns. It would, right. It wouldn't change the way I feel about the program. It would just make make me a little more sane for, man, for managing message boards. But then, you know, eight months from now, we're having this conversation all over again. Twelve months from now, yeah. when we lose a football game right. and things like that. Yeah. And guys come back skinny and – doesn't look like get they've pushed done off everything the ball on yeah. fourth and one exactly. and things like that. Yeah. yeah, it's like you said. Right now, it's the, the easiest change is the offensive coordinator. Right. But long term, is this? It, it's not. It doesn't seem like an easy fix. Yeah. And yeah. if you know, like you said, extend or fire. Yeah. And if you do go with the option of extending him, how much confidence do you have that that stuff structurally is going to change within the program? And, and right. Exactly. And and. I, I don't think it's all like I think just about every other football program has an associate athletic director for football that oversees the football program. He's the GM of football. Tech doesn't have one of those, yeah. and I don't understand why they don't have one of those. Um, Tech also currently doesn't have a chief financial officer of the athletic department. This is a hundred million dollar business, and there's no chief financial officer. So I think that there are other things over there in that uh, in the athletic department that I think could be done better that would help Fuente or help whoever the next head coach is, whether it's him or, or somebody else. You know, and I, I think there are other things that need to be do, need to be done to improve the football program that are just as important. You know, and, and I want to see all of those things done. Right. Or it'll handicap the next coach the next if coach. Fuente does get fired. Yeah, you have great facilities. You have, you know. They did all this reconstruction, created all these these branded things, but if you can't structurally help them, I mean, nothing changes. The Reach for Excellence campaign, yeah. man, and and that whole thing got kickstarted. Not necessarily kickstarted, but the timetable got pushed up way up when he flirted with Baylor. Yeah. And I'm telling you, I wrote it then. I said, I don't know how his tenure is gonna 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 work out, but he'll probably end up being a long term plus for Virginia Tech football because it was his dalliance with Baylor that fired a shot across everybody's bow yeah. that we need to get off our butts and start raising more money. Yeah. Right? Well, I just I think we have all the answers here and they need to listen up. <laughs> so all, all kidding aside, we've been at it about an hour and fifteen minutes and that's usually when we and I think we have kind of worn that topic out. I think, I so. think we've kind of made people aware it's it, it, it's it's complicated. It, it, you know, it is complicated and here's the thing, like we got six more games now. But I think everything I just talked about, I'm not going to – like beating or losing to Syracuse isn't going to change anything that I yeah. just talked about. Correct. Like My opinion from here on out I think is going to stay the same between now and the end of the season, barring winning like five or six of those games. Yeah, absolutely. You know? Un unless, of course, Justin Puente ha happens to take control of the offense. Then I think, the, I think the, that's the right, one thing right, that, right. that could maybe – I mean, I'm in the, the same the, boat. The like, thing think, is, man, if he was going to do it, he would have done it today. And that, yeah, and, 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 so I don't and think that's, that's going to happen. And that's something you would like, – like, you would probably if, announce. Right, right, and the thing is, if he if he happened to announce it, do it and announce it next week, it will have meant we lost to Syracuse, mm -hmm. in which case we're three and four and – you know, it's just not. And then we have four, four or five road games. Oh, right, exactly. For for those of you wondering, I don't think that's anything he can do on the sly either. Yeah. Because if he's calling plays, you're going to know it. He's right, going right, to have a play right. sheet and he's going to be talking. Yeah. Right, right. Well, the thing, there's maybe, maybe if you, uh, maybe you try to steal a win so you don't announce it and Syracuse doesn't know it's, it's coming. Right. 
Okay. Because because if you announce it beforehand, maybe you go back and look at some of his TCU stuff when he was an offensive coordinator there and, yeah. or, and things like that. I don't know. But I just, generally speaking, yes, that is something that is always accompanied by an announcement yeah. right. from yeah. the universe. But, but to your main point, I, I don't – there's – there's the, a couple short-term – I mean, there's one short-term option with, with the play calling, with the offensive coordinator stuff. But outside of that, everything's long-term. You know, and yeah. it's not it's, – none of them are issues that are going to be fixed within the next six weeks of the football season right. when you have to go on the road four times. Mm-hmm. So, uh, Nick tells me, at least before the break, nobody was asking questions. They were just arguing in the live stream. <laughs> so, did you, did you get any questions or, or interesting stats or comments? I mean, the most – common i guess question it could be reworded you talked about like you said only one short term one long term is there any goals by the end of the season that fuente needs to hit to not only make the fan base happy but the high ups happy i mean don't be last in total offense in the acc i think i think we're gonna be there <laughs> it would take a massive turnaround i think at this point to make up that ground what are we 13 yards behind but per game per game yeah yeah, yeah we'll see uh get rid of Cornelson is the only thing he can do to salvage himself with the fan base yeah. he's not popular with the fan base right now but if, he but if you gave the fan base him, an option between Justin Fuente and Brad Cornelson, they, they would pick Justin Fuente, yeah, from right. what I can tell. So he can he could do that either now or like immediately announce it at the end of the season. But here's the thing. If you keep Cornelson, you're not going to have one-off games by the end of the season to keep Fuente, yeah. in my opinion. Yeah, and, and, and it could get bad. As far as goals, like – I don't know. I could sit here and say going to a bowl, having a winning record and going to a bowl game. It doesn't matter at this point. It doesn't point, matter. Though. There's too many fans that, that are too much against yeah. this. I just, yeah, I don't Ticket sales will drop. I mean, you need some sort of a major shakeup at this point. Yeah, and that's one of the things. I know we we talked about it. You you mentioned it in your story yesterday about, you know, Whit Babcock wasn't in the post-game press conference. Mm-hmm. For the, from what I understand, that's... He, he was there every, and I added it yeah, to your story, yeah. he had been there every other home game this season. I, I know, I've got a buddy who's in there for every every, <laughs> ga- every game. Yeah. And dating back to however many years, and he's like, I don't remember ever Whit not being here at a post-game press conference. So I don't know if that says anything or not. Somebody suggested maybe he was at his son's William & Mary game, and I looked that up, and no, they, they at, played at Maine. I, I believe, I want to say I saw him in Merriman after the game, okay. but I don't. But he was not in the press conference. But but to my point, Brad Worthman was, mm-hmm. and I actually rode the elevator back up to the press box after the press conference with Brad Worthman, mm-hmm. and I like Brad, great guy, but it looked like he had seen a ghost. Like, well, Brad's overworked. Yeah, well, well, yeah, but yeah, but yeah. part of it is, but but I was I was joking with a couple other people you know as we walk back to the press box he and his staff have to figure out how to try to sell tickets for this yeah in, right. a, in addition to all the other operational yeah. stuff they've been dealing he's with an operational guy yeah he's the hokey club guy i mean brad, brad should demand double whatever salary he's but making but you know, he's doing two or three jobs but you know how difficult it's going to be i mean like you said who wants to buy tickets for this even if they right. do go and win even if you know, there's six games left. Even if they win four of the final six and finish seven five, I, I'm afraid there's too many ill ill feelings. That, at this that's point, what I'm yeah. saying. All right. Anything else, Nick? Uh, there was one good question here asked here at the end. How important was the role of a Jerry Kill 
coach situation. No, who asked the question? We always try to give credit to Ross UL. I hope I'm saying this. I didn't want to say the name because I don't want to say the <laughs> name wrong. First name is Ross. Okay. So, thank okay. you, Ross. Um, <laughs> I, I, you know, I, I don't know. I, I do know there's no way you can prove either way how much Jerry Kill helps from an X's and O's standpoint or whether he said, oh, pull Ryan Willis and put in Hendon Hooker or anything like that. There's different theories about all of that. I think whenever there is a shakeup like that and you bring in someone new because you're clearly disappointed with one part of your team, uh, I think that kicks kicks everybody else up a notch. You know, it kicks the other coaches up a notch because they realize you're not happy with their performance. kicks the players up a notch because – they realize you're not happy with the offense's performance at all. So, I mean, I, I think that that could be something to that. Now, that being said, the offense didn't start playing better until, like, game four of Jerry Kill's short tenure at Virginia Tech. So it wasn't an immediate effect. Right. It wasn't an immediate Jerry Kill effect. So I don't know how much of that was him and how much of it wasn't. Um, I... I I do think there needs to be an administrator in this program that knows a lot about football. Um, Witt has done a fantastic job for all sports. I mean, Tech is good at just about everything right now except for football. And volleyball. Right, and volleyball. And volleyball. <laughs> uh, but, but they have a new coach But, but, there, but right? it's a short yeah. – like, he, he hired Tommy Tuberville at Cincinnati, and that's one of the very few Cincinnati coaches in recent memory that didn't work out. And now he's hired Justin Fuente at Virginia Tech, and – doesn't look like Justin Fuente is going to work out. So I, I worry that Witt just doesn't quite isn't quite able to wrap his mind around football, football because right. he's clearly got so, all the other sports right, down. Right, exactly. Um, so I think he needs an assistant in there, an associate athletic director who knows a lot about football. And I think that 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 could help him with hirings. It could help them with budgeting. It's like you can explain this is why we need this money for this. You know, it could it could just help in the day to day running of things. Um, I, I so I think that's uh, I'm not gonna say that's just as important as is is a football coach, but I think it's an extremely important ingredient to the overall success of a football. Yeah, program. like you said, those are the little tiny things behind the scenes that that help that take a program up a notch. Right, yeah. right. Another set of eyes. Yeah, uh, to a certain somebody from an administrative standpoint, and said, you know what, when I was at Georgia. Here's, this here's how did. we did things. Yeah. 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 And there's nobody like that at Virginia Tech. All right, very good. Anything else, Nick? Final say, your final opinion. Question by Richie Worrell. Do you think Witt will keep Fuente if Cornelson goes or is at least just assigned to quarterbacks? Well, uh, this, is your final, this is your final verdict right here. Yeah. Like Mark May, Lou Holtz right here. Uh, you know, if they have a meeting at the end of the season and – I, I would seriously hope that if if Witt gave any consideration to bringing Fuente back, it would be with the caveat that it can't be with Cornelson because that's not sustainable. This fan base is done with that, and I think the players. Are and done I think with that. Witt's not dumb. I think he knows. I that. think yeah. he knows that at yeah. this point too. Um, so if 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 Witt is back, it'll be without Cornelson. That that you if, mean, Fuente, if, if, if Fuente's back, that'll be without Cornelson, in my opinion. Right. Which is to me, that's so. Why not do it now? Yeah. Why not take it over now? Unless he already knows he's going to be gone. Yeah. Who knows? And like I mentioned to you guys, I texted you guys after the game and you included in your story. It it felt like Fuente, for the first time in 
know, I've covered this team since I stepped on campus in 2017. And for mm-hmm. the first time, to me, it felt like Fuente was talking post-game. Like it was somebody who knew his job was on the line. Yeah, uh, who uh, felt like for the first time he might not have he a job next not, year. Yeah, yeah He yeah. knew he'd stepped from one side of that line to the, to the other, other. It, standing there it, with six games left yeah. to go. It, it felt like – it was honestly maybe the first time I've ever heard him talk where he felt like where I felt like he didn't have any confidence at all. Yeah, like he didn't have any um, answers. So, like – yeah, gun to my head. What's going to happen at the end of the season is I just I think it's going to end for all of them. Yeah, but I hope it doesn't come to that. I hope he's able to fix it. Um, but it just doesn't seem like it's trending in that direction. Yeah, I I, I would have to. I agree with Chris Nick. I, you know, like I, Fuente's a a great person, but it, like you said, if you're gonna if you're gonna make the Cornelson change, why not do it right now? You know, try to salvage the last six games of the season, make changes, show you're trying to make progress. You know, I, I don't have confidence that they are going to do that. And to me, that means that there's a decent chance that at the end of the season, what's going to make a change Huge in, in general, which, which of course I was thinking about this earlier, which stinks for a lot of the the coaches that they brought on, especially on the defensive side of the ball, that that are doing so do, doing so well. I mean, think about right. that. You brought in Justin Hamilton. This is his second year as a defensive coordinator, doing doing really well, improving a lot, and you know there's a chance you're gonna you know ax him and Ryan Smith, Jack Tyler. Yeah, so so many all, transitions in a short. J.C. Price. Yeah, I mean, it's yeah. and I, I'm I'm not going to sit here and discuss other coaching candidates as long as Fuentes yeah. head coach. That's disrespectful. Yeah. Um, but you know, it's one of those situations that you kind of feared coming into it, yeah. and uh, possibly we're facing that. Yeah. All right, so appreciate it, Nick, and that wraps things up for episode 200, a celebratory edition of the Texas God, Island. We celebrated Happy so birthday, hard. Frank Weaver! Yay! <laughs> we should have a little cake there for Frank and 200 candles on it for the Texas Island podcast. Should have got him on the podcast. Uh, we're going to get around to that. I hope I'm not, I'm not, don't, don't quote me on that. I'm just, I would like that, that, that to happen someday. Um, so the podcast started back in August of 2017. So that, that's how long it's been going on. So I guess we've averaged one a week. Uh, so any, any, anyway, thanks to everybody for listening and watching. Well, at this point you're watching in the future, you'll be listening. So if you're listening in the future, thank you for listening on your, by the way, over 370 Live viewers oh, at one three hundred seventy. They were much more interested in talking about the coaching situation than they were talking about the pit game. So that so that tells me <laughs> when, we, when we started talking about the coaching situation, everybody started texting their friends and saying they're yo, talking about it. Yo, they're about <laughs> to say what's going to happen. It's <laughs> <laughs> uh, good stuff. All right, we, we usually like to go uh, over what's uh, going to be on the site uh, this week, but you know, normal you know, week, man. Yeah, normal I'll, week. I'll, uh, I'll be at the football players press conference tomorrow. I don't think anything of note is going to be said, but I'll try to, I'll write something up anyway. And then I guess we'll have a, we'll have an extra article Wednesday. Or Thursday. I'm, I, uh, maybe I'll, that'll be a good time for my, my Justin Mutz feature. Come up with something. Oh, yeah. Cool. Yeah. Let's, yeah. let's change, change, change pace. the eye level a little bit, yeah. I guess. Uh, basketball season. Let's talk about basketball season. season. Yeah. November, November 9th. Yeah. So uh, for me, tomorrow, Tuesday, is my 25th wedding anniversary. Well, congrats, congratulations so early. I will be here for, uh, for the preview and for Wednesday's podcast and then uh, taking off and going to Florida to spend some time with my wife. So uh, we got married back in 1996. When we got engaged, I had just started my little hokey sports page 
and I'd done like one or two updates. So we got engaged and we're like, ah, let's get married as fast as we can. Let's get married in the fall. So I looked at the schedule and I was like, okay, there's an off weekend there. So we got married in, on October 19th. And then you never thought about, oh, that might not be the off week in future seasons. You know, this, this little, this little webpage I've started, <laughs> that, that's going to be my, uh, that's going to be my life's work. And I'm going to be working like a dog during football season. We should really get married in the spring so we can properly celebrate our wedding anniversary. So she's been very nice waiting until the 25th to actually get a trip out of it. So, uh, so where in Florida are you going? You know, it's either Delray Beach or uh, or uh, Destin. I'm not sure. We're going to see her sister and then That'll be fun. brother-in-law. And That's then, Florida. Uh, and it'll probably be nicer than watching Tech Syracuse. It's going to be like, yeah, I'm, I'm afraid I'm actually not going to be able to watch it down there. Uh, so I'll be looking hey, at hey, it on live stats. The, la- the last time you were not here for a football game was the North Carolina game in 2019. Well, let's throw out 2020 when nobody was here for a football okay, game. Yeah, yeah, that's right. I had to go to my niece's wedding. Six overtime game? Yeah. Yep. I missed yeah. that one. <clears throat> so I watched that so, one by myself in a condo. So Pitt Syracuse is triple overtime. That's what I'm hearing. Triple overtime. Yep. So anyway, we wrap it up. Thank you for uh, watching and listening. Thanks to Southeast Regional Training Center for uh, sponsoring. And we will see you Wednesday on episode 201 where it's all downhill from there after number 200.